Greetings, and welcome to the podcast. Think about the people that feature most prominently in your life. Not necessarily loved ones, just those who you spend the most time around. If each of them, in something resembling the plot of a psychological thriller, were told that they were to die in 24 hours' time, how do you imagine each of those individuals would spend their last day as creatures that breathe and feel? Someone who's been generally content with the quality of their life may just wish to spend their final hours in the presence of family at home. Another who spends the majority of their days mired in regret might desperately try to make peace with the fact that the hope of someday, say making amends, was always just hope in vain. We imagine, in any case, though, that all will try to make some sense of their time in the land of the living will try to form acceptable conclusions to the stories in their heads. We see things as totalities, not as collections of constituent parts. If this weren't the case, awareness of anything at all would be difficult, if not impossible. To say something exists is to say that you see it as a whole, as an individual unit. Several pieces of wood carved into specific shapes and joined together may make an individual table. Most of us would see it as an individual unit anyway. Kant says this is possible through synthesis. He also says that synthesis doesn't stop at awareness of the things which affect us through the senses. Context is the most important part of experience. Just having an understanding of things spatio-temporally isn't enough to motivate us. There needs to be some meaning attached to a set of spatio-temporal events for us to be stimulated to action. And meaning is exactly what we get from our minds. When someone says there's no meaning in life, they speak falsely. All experience is meaning-laden. Whether that meaning causes suffering or pleasure is a different conversation. If you go down a certain street on your commute to work or school every day, and the most remarkable thing about that street is a row of houses spanning a single block, all of which have unusual designs, you'll be stimulated by the appearance of those houses to some degree. However, if you meet someone, start dating that person and find out that they live in one of those houses on that street, now the way you stand in relation to them is different. When you pass by on your way to work, the desire to stop and approach is stronger. Not seeing that loved one's car in the driveway and wondering where they are and what they're doing seems perfectly natural. And if, after a heated relationship that lasts several months, things end on a bad note, you'll likely find a new route to work and it may be a long time before you go down that street again. When we take an objective view of things, say, we watch another person move along a certain trajectory in a certain set of moments, we mostly consider their navigated path in terms of their relationship to the features of the physical landscape around them, even if we do wonder what's going on in that person's head that's motivating them. When we consider our own subjective experience, however, we're well aware that various feelings get mapped onto the physical landscape around us, and when we navigate, we navigate a landscape of meaning. And we know that sometimes people attach what most of us would consider very disturbing meanings to things. In the same way that we carve up the physical world by identifying aggregates as individual things and seeing them as totalities, we see in a certain set of events that make up what we take to be an individual unit of experience, say a car crash or a first kiss, a collection of meanings that form an overarching one. A meaning which is a totality of meanings that collectively define a moment for us. And this is true when we think of ourselves. Each moment becomes a memory, 
taken in through the subjective lens of experience, and stamped with the signification created at the nexus where sensory input is synthesized with reflections of the past and speculative glimpses of the future. That long series of moments embedded in our psyches is taken by us to be a whole, a totality of perceptions, each of which, when created, as often as not, seems unconnected to the vast majority of our past perceptions. Yet somehow sensory impressions and impressions of reflection get combined into something more complex. And when they become reflections of the past, they no longer seem so unconnected from all of our other experiences, and rather they seem to be part of a larger whole, an ongoing narrative that gives us a sense of continuing personal identity. We started this conversation in Episode 1. David Hume implied that this sense presents an illusion of the self. In the same way that we conflate our concepts and the actual objects of experience which give rise to those concepts, we confound our individual perceptions with our identities. Recall, Hume says, quote, We have a distinct idea of an object that remains invariable and uninterrupted through a supposed variation of time, and this idea we call that of identity or sameness. We also have a distinct idea of several different objects existing in succession and connected together by a close relation, and this, to an accurate view, affords as perfect a notion of diversity as if there was no manner of relation among the objects. But though these two ideas of identity and a succession of related objects be in themselves perfectly distinct and even contrary, yet it is certain that in our common way of thinking they are generally confounded with each other. That action of the imagination by which we consider the uninterrupted and invariable object, and that by which we reflect on the succession of related objects, are almost the same to the feeling, nor is there much more effort of thought required in the latter case than in the former. The relation facilitates the transition of the mind from one object to another, and renders its passage as smooth as if it contemplated one continued object. This resemblance is the cause of the confusion and mistake and makes us substitute the notion of identity instead of that of related objects. Unquote. He then says, of the notion of self, quote, But farther, what must become of all our particular perceptions upon this hypothesis? All these are different and distinguishable and separable from each other, and may be separately considered, and may exist separately, and have no deed of tiny thing to support their existence. After what manner, therefore, do they belong to self? and how are they connected with it? For my part, when I enter most intimately into what I call myself, I always stumble on some particular perception or other, of heat or cold, light or shade, love or hatred, pain or pleasure. I never can catch myself at any time without a perception. When my perceptions are removed for any time, as by sound sleep, so long am I insensible of myself, and may be truly said to not exist. And were all my perceptions removed by death, and could I neither think, nor feel, nor see, nor love, nor hate, after the dissolution of my body, I should be entirely annihilated, nor do I conceive what is farther requisite to make me a perfect non-entity. If anyone, upon serious and unprejudiced reflection, thinks he has a different notion of himself, I must confess I call reason no longer with him. All I can allow him is that he may be in the right as well as I and that we are essentially different in this particular. He may perceive something simple and continued, which he calls himself, though I am certain there is no such principle in me. Unquote. Kant explained this conflation of individual experiences and self-identity as an imprinting. 
identity gets stamped onto all experiences passing through the lens of subjectivity. In the moment, we take ourselves as being in the world and interacting with it, but in memory, the world of our past perception seems to be a part of us, rather than being distinct from us, as it does when we're actually undergoing the experience. He says, quote, The I think must accompany all my representations, for otherwise something would be represented in me which could not be thought. In other words, the representation would either be impossible, or at least be, in relation to me, nothing. That representation which can be given previously to all thought is called intuition. All the diversity or manifold content of intuition has, therefore, a necessary relation to the I-think in the subject in which this diversity is found. But this representation, I-think, is an act of spontaneity. That is to say, it cannot be regarded as belonging to mere sensibility. I call it pure apperception, in order to distinguish it from empirical or primitive apperception, because it is self-consciousness which, whilst it gives birth to the representation, I think, must necessarily be capable of accompanying all our representations. It is, in all acts of consciousness, one and the same, and unaccompanied by it, no representation can exist for me. The unity of this apperception I call the transcendental unity of self-consciousness, in order to indicate the possibility of a priori cognition arising from it. For the manifold representations which are given in an intuition would not all of them be my representations if they did not all belong to one self-consciousness, that is, as my representations, even although I am not conscious of them as such, they must conform to the condition under which alone they can exist together in a common self-consciousness, because otherwise they would not all without exception belong to me. From this primitive conjunction follow many important results. For example, this universal identity of the apperception of the manifold given in intuition contains a synthesis of representations, and is possible only by means of the consciousness of this synthesis. For the empirical consciousness which accompanies different representations is in itself fragmentary and disunited, and without relation to the identity of the subject. This relation, then, does not exist because I accompany every representation with consciousness, but because I join one representation to another and am conscious of the synthesis of them. Consequently, only because I can connect a variety of given representations in one consciousness is it possible that I can represent to myself the identity of consciousness in those representations. Unquote. The self as subject, the one doing the perceiving, the one doing the actions and the thinking, it needs no manifold of empirical intuitions. It's that which you refer to in each moment as yourself when the moment is all that matters. The self as object is the object of your representations, the empirical self. It's you as you appear to yourself, but not you as you are in yourself. This transcendental self has much going on that can never be given to you in awareness. To make claims about knowing yourself is to make claims about how you stand in relation to your own history of experiences. You don't know exactly how you'll act in every moment, and oftentimes you'll be surprised by your behavior. What is given in awareness was processed below the level of awareness. Consciousness is trapped somewhere inside a larger whole. If you take this awareness to be you, then you admit that you're at the mercy of a set of processes you have no way of being acquainted with. That's your lot. Such is the nature of human experience, for you and for me. Going forward, we'll certainly come back to critique of pure reason when doing so is appropriate, but this episode concludes our focused journey through Kant's epic work. 
We haven't covered even half of it, but we've gotten the essence of Kant's epistemological thesis. I encourage you to finish the book on your own, and of course, revisit it from time to time. Critique of Pure Reason is, for me, the most important work I've ever read, and until my dying day, I'll be grateful to Immanuel Kant for producing it, and to all of those who've made sure that the ideas contained within it are still talked about today. Anyway, until next time, as always, thanks for listening.